Well, welcome back to the Palby Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at Palby Christian Church in beautiful central Oregon. Uh, I feel like a weatherman when I look out my window and say, boy, it's breezy today, uh, kind of windy and uh, cloudy. Tomorrow, um, I'm, I'm recording this early. Uh, I do that each week uh, as I can. Sometimes we actually have to just record my sermons, but I'm I'm uh, doing this on Friday um, before my Sunday sermon. Well, tomorrow, Saturday, is our Lord's Acre celebration, and Lord's Acre is this huge uh, harvest Thanksgiving where people donate of their time and their talent and their treasure uh, to make sure that we have upkeep on the on the buildings. We uh, give money to uh, kiddos going to Bible college, um, things like that. We give to missions and special projects. So it's it's an exciting time, and it really is a time where all of our congregation gets together. And uh, so it's it's been kind of a crazy week, and today is a crazy day. But anyways, <coughs> you'll want to turn to, um, grab your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be looking at one of the um, most difficult parables to understand. It's a puzzling parable, if you will. Um it's the it's the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, some have misinterpreted this par- parable to imply that uh, Jesus is actually commending the dishonesty of this manager. Uh, he was serving a rich man, and there was an accusation that he was mismanaging the funds. And if, you know, it seems like Jesus is commending him for his dishonesty. So, at face value, it's very confusing, especially in the lens of our modern Western mindset. Before we attempt to interpret the parable, I, I want to go back and just remind people about the nature of Jesus' parables. What, what was his intent? Because some are very easy to understand. But even according to Jesus' own words, some parables weren't meant to be easily understood. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 13, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Um you know, Jesus is trying to say something, and you'd think, well, aren't you going to be plain and just come out with it? And he goes, no, because uh, some people will not even want to hear it, even if I told them. And so I'm going to I'm going to tell them in a way that they have to really dig, dig deep. Now, he also said to his disciples in John 16, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. He says, however, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. So Jesus said some parables were meant to, to not be very obvious, and this is one of those. So um, one, one, one cool thing about biblical interpretation is sometimes you have to use Scripture to help you understand and, ha- and how to interpret other Scripture. So uh, real quickly, I, I'm going to go over a couple other parables um, that, uh, well, that I, I have done at least one of these. Um, we, we've studied that, and I preached on it to, Essentially, we need to show how parables work because there's a common theme throughout these parables, and that's really something that uh, we ought to take uh, note of. So, in Matthew 13, for example, <clears throat> there's a parable about a farmer who finds that after he has uh, planted the, the wheat, his enemy has come alongside of that wheat and has planted weeds among the wheat. Now, the cool thing about this parable is that 
it's one of the very few where Jesus actually explains very conveniently the meaning of the parable to his disciples. Just a few verses later uh, in, in uh, Luke, I mean, Matthew 13, 37 and following. And through the, that explanation, we begin to see how uh, certain characters represent certain things. And, and just it's, it's always there. We find that the sower of the wheat uh, is Jesus. Uh, we, we see that the field that was sown is this world that we're living in. The good seed are the sons of God's kingdom. The bad seed are the ones of the, the sons of the evil one, the, the, the seed of the weed. Um, the enemy who sows that uh, bad seed is the devil. Uh, the angels are the ones that come down and reap the harvest. And then finally, the harvest is at the end of the age. So it's pretty clear. <clears throat> and uh, Jesus makes it clear. Now, again, when you learn the discipline of biblical interpretation, you'll find that once you see this kind of template, it helps you now understand other parables, because typically the symbolism is very similar, if not identical. So, for instance, um, two chapters previous, Luke 14, we, we looked at that a few weeks ago, Jesus tells a parable where a man is hosting a banquet and all the guests decline the invitation to come because they're too busy. And so the man invites the poor and the lame and the blind and even has his servant go out into the wilderness, uh, the highways and the byways, out of the countryside to bring people in. <clears throat> now, if you recall that parable and that sermon, Jesus told that story at a dinner party. So he was at a banquet, essentially. It was being it was a, a party thrown by a prominent Pharisee. And uh, as the parable was told, it was it became very awkwardly obvious that the characters that Jesus was putting into the story, they were real people. They were real groups of people. Many of them that were right there at the banquet that Jesus said had been invited to. So again, the banquet host, well, that would be Jehovah, God, the Heavenly Father. The, the servant who goes to bring uh, the guest to the banquet, that's Jesus. And the first guests who make excuses are actually the Jewish leaders. And then the poor and the blind and the lame, those are the everyday Jews who, you know, they have to follow their leaders, and sometimes the leaders led them astray. And they have all of these conditions that the leaders just don't seem to care about. And then finally, those who are invited from the highways and the byways and the countryside and the, and the wilderness area, those are the Gentiles that one day would come into God's kingdom as well. So we see then that um, parables can follow very similar interpretive uh, templates, if you will. So now we're in Luke 16. We're going to see a much more complex subject, um, but the parable still is going to have some of the meaning that the other parables have. I'm going to read uh, the first eight verses and actually just the first part of uh, verse eight, but this is how it goes in the English Standard Version. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, Well, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of olive oil. So he said to him, so he said to him, well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. 
And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, well, take your bill and write 80. Now the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So now let's put this idea that there are recurring themes within parables. Let's put that to the test here. Just like the other parables, every character represents a particular group or individual. The master, once again, represents God. The dishonest manager actually represents the leadership of God's people at the time, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law. Because we know from other writings and uh, from history that uh, the leadership of God's people, they were taking advantage of, of the people. Uh, they were uh, taking advantage of the debtors. And so the debtors are representing the people of God that the leaders were supposed to be shepherding, but really they were taking advantage of. So the master, who is God, again, is concerned that his resources are being misused. So the manager's called into account. He is going to lose his job, um, which, by the way, when, when you read in the Old Testament, God calls out the shepherds of his people, the, the priests and the Levites, a lot for doing such a lousy job of shepherding his people. And if you read closely, you'll see that most likely the dishonesty came in the form of this exorbitant interest that the manager had tacked onto the bill. Um, so the real debt that was owed to the master was not necessarily what uh, the dishonest manager was going to be collecting. And by the way, as we're going to see later, that was common practice in those days. So instead of serving the master's interest only, <clears throat> I, I want you to see that the manager was also padding his own pockets. He was looking after himself as well in this job. And then in verse 13, Jesus actually tells us what the point of the parable is. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Okay, that's, that's the bottom line as he's looking at these very rich uh, leaders of God's people who they got rich by taking advantage of, of the Jews of the time. Now, how do we know that the manager represents the, the Jews? Well, because if you jump down to verses 14 and 15, you're going to see that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, no wiggle room there at all. They were choosing money and their own comfort and their own riches over doing what God had asked them to do. Now, don't get me wrong. Money's not the problem. Money itself is not evil. We've talked about that before. Uh, money is neither good nor bad. It's just how you're going to use money. The scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is often misquoted where people say, oh, well, money is the root of all evil. no. Paul does not say that money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So he's not talking about money. He's talking about the love of money. And that's exactly what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of. The Pharisees were lovers of money. And so Jesus is calling them into account, just like God was calling, or the, the, the master was calling the manager into account. Now, here's where the... The, the parable gets a little confusing because the ma master tells the manager, you're fired. 
and he wants him to close out the books for the accounting purposes. And the manager thinks about his situation and realizes that he is really out on his luck because he's not strong enough to, to do manual labor uh, and he's too proud to beg. So he has to come up with some kind of plan for his future. And, and it sounds very deceitful, by the way, in our culture. But for some reason, what he decided to do was actually commended by the master who had just fired him. So what's the deal? If it's a dishonest practice, if it's deceitful, why in the world would the master actually commend the, the, the manager? So here's the deal. As a solution to his problem, the dishonest manager begins to discount all the debts, right? All the debts owed to the master in order to gain favor with the people. He says, I'm going to do this so that when I'm out on my ear, I might be welcomed into their house. Okay. So he goes to the first guy, says, you owe 800 gallons of olive oil, make that 400 gallons. Or you owe a, a, a thousand bushels of wheat, make it 800. Right. And the master commends the dishonest manager when he hears this. So what's going on? Well, first of all, you need to understand what he is being commended for. Now, I just read uh, verse 8, the first part of verse 8, and it said that the master commended him for being shrewd, commended him for his shrewdness. Okay? Now, that's an unfortunate interpretation, in, in my view at least, because the word shrewdness, at least in my mind, and I think in our culture, shrewdness has a negative connotation. So why would the master look at this negative character trait and say, way to go, I love that? That doesn't make sense. Again, biblical interpretation rule number 342. I don't know. You got to interpret scripture using scripture. The word shrewdness in the original language is actually a word that's used lots of different places in the Bible, but it's translated most of the time a bit differently than shrewdness. For instance, uh, if we look at Matthew 7, 24, I want you to hear, see, listen, and see if you can hear where the word shrewdness comes in, or, or shrewd. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Matthew 7, 24, Jesus is concluding the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, you don't see the word shrewd in there, in the English, do you? No. But it's the same word in there that describes this dishonest manager. It's there. It's the same one who describes this man who built his house on the rock. And what kind of man was he? He, was a, he wasn't shrewd, the shrewd man who built his house on the rock. No, he was the wise man who built his house on the rock. See, I believe that that's why the master commends the manager, is because what he did was something really that was very, very wise. Okay, It was prudent. It was intelligent. And that's actually how the word is translated more often than shrewd in the New Testament. Right. And th those are positive ways of, of interpreting that word, by the way. So because the manager is commended by the guy who just fired him, I, I think that it's uh, very much a possibility that this should be seen in a more positive light than shrewdness. Because the manager's action really is not hurting the bottom line for the master. Okay, Now, follow me on this. On the surface, it does seem, especially for us Western moderns, right? It seems like the dishonest manager is discounting what is owed to the master. 
but that's not the case. Something else is at work. And an understanding of typical practices found in the first century is needed. You see, in our culture, if somebody um, is hired to uh, manage resources for somebody, um, they're responsible to uh, you know, keep the money, uh, keep the books, and, and uh, to kind of uh, know what is owed to his master uh, by the customers, uh, his employer. And then, in return, that employer um, pays that manager uh, a yearly wage, right, or an hourly wage. So again, in our culture, if that manager reduced the bills owed to his employer and he was caught, he would most likely be fired. And sometimes he would even find himself uh, in jail if the amount that had been uh, taken away from the master was great enough. Okay. So that's it. That's in our culture. But that's not how it would have been back then. You know, to read the Bible, you got to work hard to not allow your own personal cultural perspective to to cloud your vision or to uh, dictate how you read scripture, okay? Uh, Because that can lead to some serious problems. In this case, it it causes confusion because why would the master commend what we think would be unscrupulous business practices? But if you knew that back in those times, if you were employed as a manager, you you would not be given a yearly wage. Now, you would collect the master's uh, bills, the, the, the bills that are owed to him, the, the money that was owed to him, and then you would get a commission by you yourself adding to the bill. Okay? So it was the practice of the day for the manager to tack on his fee, what he was earning by going to get the, uh, the you know, collecting on the debt. He, he could put his own fee and tack that on to what was originally owed and the, the customer would not know which was the part that was owed to the master and which was going to be going to the manager. Okay, So if a person owed somebody 800 bushels of wheat, the bill might read 1,000 bushels of wheat. Why? Well, because that would be the, the extra 200 would be the fee for the manager. By the way, this is why the Jewish tax collectors like Matthew, Levi, <clears throat> and Zacchaeus were so hated by the fellow Jews because the tax collector, they were working for Rome, who was the enemy, the oppressing enemy. The tax collector would go collect the money, the tax money that was owed to Rome, but so that they could live as their living wage, they would then add money to the tax bill. And the more money they added, obviously, the bigger the tax bill and the more money that they would earn. And many of them lived in luxury. So their fellow Jews would look at them and say, how could you have betrayed us like this just to get rich on your own? You know, take care of yourself. That's not, that's not how God had wanted us to function as a nation. Now, considering that this manager was called unjust <clears throat> or unrighteous, we might be able to assume that he might have been actually placing an extraordinarily high amount <clears throat> for his fee in order to make a lot of money at the expense of both his master and his debtors. However, his tune changed when he found out he was going to be fired. So he decides to reduce the amount that the debtors owed, most likely by the excessive amount that he had added for his own sake. After all, uh, if he was going to be fired, he wasn't going to get that fee anyway. So why not create a situation where 
the gratitude of others for their bill to be lowered. That might be beneficial to him in his newly unemployed situation. Shrewd? Maybe. Wise? Undoubtedly. Very wise. It would seem that once we understand the practice of debt collecting in those days and what the manager would have been in charge of, he's not cheating the master at all. What he's doing is he's forfeiting his own commission. And in doing so, he's benefiting the debtors. He's uh, seeing that his master gets what is due him, and he is able to look like the good guy. So everybody wins. That's very wise, and that's why he is commended. Now, if you go back to who is listening to this parable, when the Pharisees hear it, they know it's about them. Remember, that's why in verses 14 and 15, they were very upset because they said, "We, we know that this is about us. They knew the way that they were treating God's people. They knew it wasn't ethical. They knew it was not above board. But they loved the financial benefit that they had from this political position. So, for example, when a widow had come to the temple to worship God, they had put rules into place that would take her last two copper coins in order for her to come and worship and be made right with God. That's madness, folks. This widow was somebody that God had actually commanded the leaders of the people to look after and care for, not to bilk them out of the last two copper coins. And Jesus called them on the carpet on that. You see, the Pharisees had long lost sight. Long ago, they had lost sight of God's kingdom. And when exorbitant amounts of money came in and passed through their hands, it was so easy for them to fall into the temptation to build their own kingdom. They loved money for what it could do for them rather than what it could do for the kingdom of God, which is why temple tax was even initiated, so that they could continue the upkeep of the temple so that people could come in and connect with God, because that was the only way to do that back then. Now, I'm sure that you know that it does take resources to advance the kingdom of God. Even today, we we use resources to help out those who are in need. We, We use the resources for ministry work. We use the resources for mission work to spread the gospel in evangelistic efforts. The Pharisees weren't so interested in 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 ministry work or evangelistic work that very much anymore. Instead, they quite often ignored what Jesus said. Um, What were the most important commandments? To love God and to love people. So, this manager, he's now been found out, right? And he doesn't have a lot of options. Okay, again, he's not strong. He doesn't want to beg. So, ironically, because he had lost his management, He now has to depend upon the love and kindness of other people to survive. People that he would have taken advantage of in the past. This guy who represents a class of the religious elite who cared very little for other people. Now he's put into a position where he has to rely on those people to take care of him. Now, one day, church, we also will lose our stewardship of the resources that God, the master, has entrusted us with. Even the ones who have accepted God's free gift of salvation through his grace, we will have to give an account as to how we managed the life, the resources, the stuff, the material possessions that we were given. And so the conclusion that Jesus offers us is found then in verses 8b, the last part of 8 through 13. Let's, let's read that real quick. 
he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? <laughs> and if you have not been faithful in what that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the dishonest manager used the little time that he had left of his stewardship to actually think ahead, to prepare for what was going to come next. Now, when we studied the Sermon on the Mount last year, Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 6. He said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, there are two kinds of wealth, according to Jesus, according to Luke chapter 16 here. There is unrighteous wealth, which is essential material goods that don't last into eternity. Again, money itself is not good or bad. So when he calls it unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth, the wealth is not the thing that is unrighteous. It's it's just used for purposes that are not eternal. Okay, we'll, we'll just put it like that. But the second kind of wealth is the true riches. We read that, which would be what Jesus would say there in Matthew chapter 6, treasures that you lay up for yourself in heaven. They are eternal riches. That's what true riches are. So the reality is, is that what we have, it's, it's really not ours. It has come from God, okay? And we simply manage it for a time. One day our stewardship will run out, okay? Either we will lose it because we were horrible managers of what God gave to us, or we will die and it is not taken with us, okay? So when we die, we should want to be received into eternal dwellings by the people that we have helped with the true riches that God has blessed us with. See, if we were wise, we would understand the, the resources that God gave to us. They're, yes, they are to take care of the needs that we have. They are given to us so that we can provide for our family. They are given to us so that we don't allow ourselves to get into dumb debt putting ourselves in slavery to our, our creditors, right? So in order to manage the resources in a way that God would want us to, in a way that would honor God, then we need to help build the kingdom. We need to use the resources, not just for ourselves. That's not why the extra is given to us. But we need to uh, continue to think about the kingdom that, God, that Jesus said, here's your commission. Go out into all the world and make disciples of all people groups. And, and sometimes that means that we have to go ourselves. Sometimes it means that we're going to be praying for those who go. Other times it means that we're going to equip those who go by giving up of, of our resources so that other people might be able to go to heaven, have a right relationship with Jesus. And then when we die, at the end of our life, we step into those eternal um, dwellings and are welcomed by people, the people that we helped. Now, how do you do that? Especially in a day and age where debt is so rampant and, 
uh, people overspend all the time. Well, uh, you know, we're getting ready to have a class that I'm going to, that we're going to be offering here uh, at, at church, either during the Sunday school hour or maybe uh, at another time during the week. But um, this guy in our congregation used to be on the radio and he used to uh, teach biblical financial principles. So we want to actually give our people very practical advice of how to begin to manage things well so that they can contribute to the kingdom so that one day when they leave this life and go to the next, they will be welcomed by people whose lives were affected because they gave to the Lord. See, as disciples, we should see that as a joyful privilege. We should want to use the resources that God has given to us to manage. We, we should want to use those with an eternal mindset. The wealth and the resources that we have now will someday fail, as the parable there in Luke 16 reveals. See, it can be easy to forget at times that all we have belongs to the Lord, and we're simply managers. But this parable reminds us of, or teaches us, if it's not a reminder, is that it is more important to use his resources for an eternal glory and for the eternal good and love of others, rather than just to be self-absorbed, self-centered, and use it all on me because it's all about me. That is a sinful attitude, and it's not a godly way of approaching life. First John chapter 3, this is what I'm going to end with, uh, starting in verse 16. First John three sixteen through 18 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. One last thing that I didn't have in my notes, but this just kind of came to me. Uh, most of you that are listening to these podcasts, that you don't come to our church. You don't necessarily know who we are, who our leadership is, and how we do things. This is why, though, it is very important that when you do give to a church, that you are that you understand where that money is going. That it's not not that you're dictating where it's going, but that you know, you know, this church gives to missions. This uh, this church gives so much to the ministries, rather than to just blindly give to the church and then not know if the, the leadership is underhanded, maybe a little corrupt. So you got to be careful. You got to be wise. You got to be wise. But you also got to be wise in saying that you can't just hold on to it. Because if you hold on to it, that's not investing in the way that the manager, that the master would want his managers to be investing in. So, anyway, just threw that one in for a quick um, additional tip. So, anyways, thank you so much for um, tuning in. Uh, thank you for. Uh, my crew, uh, Steve Pittman, who uh, works on the tech side, Lisa Welly, who uh, puts these up on the podcast. She has to put music to them and cut them down. And she has to listen to them. And uh, so she gets she gets the sermon twice. It's pretty awesome. Anyways, thank you guys for um, just uh, tuning in and hope to uh, catch you guys next week. God bless you.